Thank you for joining us for this chapel message from the campus of Columbia International University in Columbia, South Carolina. Our mission at CIU is to educate people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Good morning, everyone. It really is a sincere honor for me to be here. 38 years ago, I sat right where you sit. <laughs> Actually, I was got here about 43 years ago, something like that. But 38 years ago, we were about a month and a half from graduation. And so I understand that uh, there's much pressure on some of you at this time. And I'm going to try and keep this as light as possible. But if it's okay, I'm going to talk fairly fast. You see, in 38 years, I've never spoken in this place. And I figure I got one shot at it. <laughs> so... Uh, to God alone be the glory. Can I just say before we get started, though? It's because of worship like that that I have hope for the future. May your generation's tribe increase for the glory of the name. Father, please be with us during these few minutes. Yes, Lord, all glory to the name of King Jesus. We worship you for who you are. We yearn for you to reveal your heart to us now. We cry out to you that anything that is said here, that as the Bereans in the book of Acts, my younger brothers and sisters and anyone else hearing this would take it to the book, go back to the word, compare scripture with scripture. Anything that crosses these lips that is not of you, we ask that we would put it aside. We would put it behind us. The Lord, we pray that if anything at all, one word, one syllable originates from your throne room, that we would embrace it for your glory, that we would desire to know you more, that we would live our lives for your glory in this generation, and that you might have your way. Thank you, Lord, for this time. Please do have your way and may Christ alone be seen. In his name we ask it. Amen. In the book of Second Chronicles, chapter 20, there is a very powerful story. Some of the principles from that story are what are going to guide us a little bit as we move through this, uh, this uh, time this morning. Jehoshaphat was a very unusual king. Unusual because he, he uh, was uh, uh, in, his, in his power, if you will, during a time in which the kings before him had suffered greatly at the hands of the Moabites, Ammonites, and Maonites who were over on the other side of the Jordan River. The reason that's important is because those guys had been bad dudes for a long time. Edersheim would say that for at least 50 years, and it could have been even longer, these guys would come across the river, they would move into, Ju the, into Judah, and they would, they, would, they would plunder, and they would pillage, they would rape, they would grab all the young men they could, and they would, they would either put them to death or take them into slavery. They would burn the crops, they would do all of these despicable acts. And they became so notorious for that which they were about that the kings prior to Jehoshaphat were incredibly afraid of them. In fact, they would go off into the hill country outside of Jerusalem, there in the caves that are, that are found there, and they would, they would look out and see these guys coming, and they would quiver and quake in fear. I wonder sometimes if that's not the way we feel in our generation, wondering what in the world we're gonna, going to do at this time of history and the place in which God has put us. But what I love about the story of Jehoshaphat is that he definitely was, as Caleb, a man of a different spirit. 
He was someone who saw God in an entirely different way. And I believe God wants us to see him in an entirely different way as well. Instead of pulling the, 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 the people of the kingdom together in order to train the men and to try and, and uh, uh, put together a good response to these, to these enemies militarily. Instead, he called the people together for fasting and prayer. And when he called them together for fasting and prayer, and they came from all over the country to do so, they were basically saying through their actions and through their choices that we want to put God front and center to this situation and this challenge at this time. And they were doing that at a time that they were absolutely scared to death. It's very appropriate that we would have this chapel just prior to your finals. (laughs) Because I used to feel scared to death every quarter. It was quarters in, not semester, so we actually had finals three times a year. But there are a whole lot of other things that scared me a whole lot more then and through the years and now. What I love is that we don't have to fear at all because we have God on our side. Jehoshaphat called them together for fasting and prayer, and then he stood up in front of them and he would pray something like this. And I think it's uh, uh, 2 Chronicles 20, verse 5 or so. He would say, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not the God who is in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Power and might are in your hand, and no one... Absolutely no one can withstand you. (laughs) That is a prayer to take to the bank. (laughs) God of our fathers. First of all, he saw him as a God of history. This Lord who is God is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all of those after him all the way up until the time of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat could see something different there because he knew that God was the God of history. I love that you could go to all kinds of different passages within the book and see that he is the God of history. But I love that Paul picks up this whole idea in Ephesians chapter 1 where he tells the Ephesians who are who are also facing many challenges in that context with the cult of Artemis and the cult of Diana as some have termed her. And they were wondering how in the world to live out this faith at this time that is so overwhelming. And he said what? In Ephesians 1.3 Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavens realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight and a few verses later and he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment to bring absolutely everything in heaven and on earth under the feet of this King Jesus from before the creation of the world all the way until such time as all will bow beneath the feet of our glorious Savior. That entire panoply of history is underneath the control and the sovereign outworking of the purposes of the God who is there. That should give you great hope as you go into your finals. And it should also give you great hope in every relationship you're in and every calling that God places on your life and what he's asking you to do for his glory at this time and in this part of history. Yes, he is the God of history, but he's also the God of the unseen realm. Remember when Jehoshaphat said, are you not the God who is in heaven? Which is exactly why Paul constantly points us throughout the epistles to the unseen realm. What is it? Colossians 3, I believe it is. Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above and not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ 
in God. He is the God of this unseen realm. And brothers and sisters, that unseen realm is more real than the realm in which we find ourselves now. Which is why Tozer would say what at the end of World War II in that introduction to that incredible book, The Knowledge of the Holy. He would say what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The most portentous, which is also a synonym for important, portentous truth about any man or a woman, we could say, is not what they at any given time may say or do, but who they believe God to be within their deepest heart. Or as Robert Murray McShyan would say, what a man is alone on his knees before God, that he is, and nothing more. Isn't it phenomenal the way our culture is trying to redefine everyone in all kinds of different categories, whether it's sexual or whether it's whatever tribe you belong to or whatever it is. And and the reality is we are defined by one thing only. Who do we believe God to be within our deepest heart? Yes, he is the God of history and he is the God of the unseen realm. And when we get that right and we understand it, and we affirm it, and we believe it, and we, we hold to it, and we live out of that truth every single day, the most amazing things will happen. I was in East Asia, which means you all know where I was. And I was with a number of believers some years ago. And they were from the underground church there. And they were involved in all kinds of things. One of them was the head of a network of underground churches of 12 million believers. These were no lightweights. But amongst them, and as we carried on that week together and went deeper in God's Word, I was amazed at one man in particular because of what they told me. This brother had been imprisoned for 18 years. Yes, it was 18 years. And they said, you want to know the story? I said, I sure would. They said, They tried to break him of his love of Christ. They tried to break him of his willingness to tell everybody about this God of history who had sent his son to die for them. They did everything they could to stop him up because he wouldn't, sorry to be impolite, but he wouldn't shut up. (laughs) He just kept telling everybody about Jesus. So they put him in solitary confinement and they put him in chains and they put him in these other things and they beat him mercilessly and they did all of these physical things to him and all of these emotional things to try and break him from it. And after about half of his prison term, they still had not managed to do so. So after nine long years, people were still coming to Christ and he was still telling them. So they said, well, let's devise one last thing. In that part of the country, in the prisons, the uh, sewage ran openly down into pipes underneath the, underneath the prison at the bottom. And I, I think there was a bit of, of space there so that somebody could get in. And it would go into an open channel. You imagine that? An open channel of raw sewage coming down and running out. And somebody needed to dig that out. And they said, that's who, that's who we'll get, is that guy that won't stop talking about Jesus. And so they said, since you won't stop talking about Jesus... We've got a job for you. And they sent him down underneath the prison walls as long as 12 hours a day to stand in waist-deep raw sewage and dig it out. You know what they said about him? Not only did they not break him, but he was so grateful to God 
for giving him a place of privacy where he could worship. <laughs> they said that when he would go to the prison every morning, he would literally grab his shovel and he would begin to sing so that everybody could hear, I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. <laughs> you imagine? All he wanted to do was be in the presence of his Savior. And he said that he was able to go underneath those prison walls and, and he had total freedom to pre, to, uh, to, to worship even as we just did, to, to pray for people out loud, to preach to himself and to others. And they, and they, and they would not go. Nobody was going to go under there to mess with him at that point. <laughs> and he did that day after day for another nine years until finally they said, we give up. We're never going to shut this guy up. Just let him go. <laughs> and so they sent him home and I had the privilege of meeting him. And it was something akin to shaking the hand of the Apostle Paul. But you must ask yourselves, okay, that's good. We know that he is a God of history and he's a God of the unseen realm. What does that have to do with us and how do we live this thing out? Even Jehoshaphat began to understand over the course of the prayer that he was making that God had a special plan in this thing. And I love the way he says, and I think it's verse 12 of that particular passage of 2 Chronicles 20, he says, he says one of the most profound prayers I believe in all of Scripture and one I prayed every day when I was in Southeast Asia in a certain Muslim country trying to, to see people brought to Christ. He says, we don't know what to do. <laughs> don't you love that? We have no idea what to do. That's the prayer we all ought to be praying because we don't know what to do. But he goes on to say this, but our eyes are upon you. We're looking heavenward. You see, Jehoshaphat understood the principle that Paul would later write about. I think it's in 2 Corinthians 12, about the fact that it's in our weakness that God's strength is perfected. In fact, it's 1 Corinthians 12, 9, I believe it is, where he says, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But God said, what? My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will glory all the more in my weakness so that his power might rest on me, depending on the translation you, you use there. That's the principle that, is going, that he's going at. And I believe it's true for us today as well to acknowledge that we are weak in ourselves, but we have the God of history and the God of the unseen realm on our side. Yeah, I don't know if I should say this, but I think I'll go ahead and say it anyway. I don't want to draw attention to myself except to draw attention to myself to what is real. I didn't make lowest on the SATs in high school. And I was in North Carolina at the time, and I think we were about 48th in the nation at that point. I made second lowest. The guy who made lowest had developmental issues and had every reason not to have what it takes to be able to do well on that test. I did so low that I took it three weeks later and scored 30 points lower than I had the one before. I made the mistake of telling my niece once what I made on that test. And I'll never forget, she literally guffawed. Do you think that's respectful to laugh uproariously at an adult like that? And she just, she just hit her knee and she said, oh, Uncle John, you must have only taken half the test. And I said, no, it was the whole thing. Why am I telling you that? Because we tend to look at one another and try and evaluate according to what we each bring to the table in the eyes of the world, in the eyes of the value system of those around us. And we think that if somebody is competent in one area, or if they're well-known in this area, or if they have this particular gifting, or if they're, and none of that matters in the kingdom, folks. 
He is the one who assigns the gifts as he deems best. He is the one that gives us our strengths and our weaknesses. Sometimes my, I, I am absolutely convinced that he uses our weaknesses more than he uses our strengths. Sometimes he'll see fit to use something that you can't even imagine. Why? Because he is yearning to bring glory to himself. He wants all of us to see Christ alone as the only way forward. Who can understand these hearts of ours? We so desperately need our hearts to be brought into alignment with who He is and what it is all about. We, 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 we yearn for our hearts to be brought to the right place. And so God is constantly asking us to take notice, to take stock. He says in, in, in uh, Proverbs 20, uh, uh, 4.23, I think it is, Proverbs 4.23, above all else... Guard your hearts. One translation, for from it flows the issues of life. Another translation, for it is the wellspring of life. You see, he yearns for us to see ourselves accurately and to see him accurately for who he really is. And as we see him in all of his power, we're able to see ourselves in our power. And it takes away all of the, all of the, of the conflicts, if you will, the brokenness that is within us to cause us to think that we must define ourselves by what we bring to the table. We don't have anything to bring to the table. Only God does. Yes, we may be gifted in certain areas or able to articulate this or that truth, but He yearns for us to see ourselves as He does and to know that we are absolutely loved by Him. How do we guard our hearts? We learn to pay attention to all He's doing in our lives. We, when He says above all else, that's what He means. I pray that not only will you have do well on your tests at the end of this semester, but I pray that you will also guard your hearts, that you will see that God is at work within you, that He has a plan for your life, that He wants to use you in ways that you never thought possible. We take seriously that God cares far more. And this is the main point I want to bring here. I am absolutely convinced that we need a reorientation to the way in which we approach God. We need to take seriously that God cares far more about who we are and who we are becoming than anything we could ever do for Him. It doesn't make us the center. What it says is that this intimacy with God, this yearning to know Him, this desire to follow Him is more important than what we seek to do for Him. If you watched most of us in ministry, you would think that the verse read, above all else, work hard for God. But he's calling us to be cognizant of the fact that in the spiritual battle in which we are engaged, the enemy constantly tempts us to not prioritize matters of the heart. Instead of embracing the depth of desire, he is awakening within, of a, within each of us, even as he did Jehoshaphat, even as he did the Apostle Paul who wrote about it often, we are duped into believing that the urgent, the things that make us seem busy before others are the matters of real importance. When we fall for this ruse, we are not guarding our hearts well. Guarding our hearts will acknowledge that the wellspring of life is not in our education, our competencies, our efforts, or our intensity. Life is to be found, to be shared, to be realized in God alone. Intimacy is defined in how we respond to God. And may I just say that that kind of intimacy will allow us then to know how to walk the journey with each other. Can I give you a quote, though? This is from a seminary professor, so I can get away with it. Eugene Peterson says this, I want to simplify your lives. When others are telling you to read more, I want to tell you to read less. 
When others are telling you to do more, I want to tell you to do less. The world does not need more of you, friends. I say that to me too. It needs more of God. Your friends do not need more of you. They need more of God. You don't need more of you. You need more of God, that God of history, that God of the unseen realm. We do not progress in the Christian life by becoming more competent, more knowledgeable, more virtuous, or more energetic. We do not advance in the Christian life by acquiring expertise. Each day, and many times each day, we need more of God. Back to square one. As we do that, he then leads us then to live a life in the realm of the impossible. He takes us places. He accomplishes things within us. He does things through others. I've seen this over and over again in those who will really come to grips with who this God is. I want to give you a couple of stories uh, as we uh, come toward the end of this time. It would have been about a year and a half ago now. I found myself in a very unusual situation. I was told that I was going to spend time with new believers. Half of them were from Iraq. The other half were from Iran. And there were a couple of others thrown in. That was scary. <laughs> I said, are you sure they've come to Christ? <laughs> if you know anything about the history of Iraq and Iran, it hasn't been a very pretty picture. But yes, they had truly come to Christ. As I came into that atmosphere, there were a couple of others who were not Iraqi or Iranian, one of them being a, a lady from uh, a neighbor, uh, another country, another Muslim country, who had been a dancer before she had come to Christ. Another was from another country yet who had been a suicide bomber up until just a few months before coming to Christ, which had been only about a year earlier. And when he told his testimony, it made your hair stand on end. As we were in there wrestling with the scriptures together, you had one translator in Arabic, another translator in Farsi, and it was like being in some kind of Middle Eastern bazaar. I would say one sentence, the, Arabi the Arabic speaker would begin to translate. He would begin to translate, and all the Arabic speakers were then immediately jumping into questions before he could get half a sentence out, while this Farsi translator was beginning to go into Farsi, and all the, all the Iranians are telling the Iraqis to be quiet so they can hear the translation, and this back and forth. I mean, it was an ADD nightmare. <laughs> and I was thinking, how, Lord, will we ever get through these few days? But as those days progressed, friends, there was one lady in particular that caught my attention. She was right on the front row, and as, I, as she, and she was from the Arabic speakers, and as, she, as they began to translate, she kept making these faces, I mean, these really, and she kept trying to interrupt, and the guy kept putting his hand up, no, no, wait, wait. And, he, and I honestly, by the second day, I said to the man, I said, I hope what I'm saying is not offensive. I don't mean to, I realize she just seems very exercised about something. And he said, no, no, it has nothing to do with you. It's, it's that she really wants to ask questions about the Word of God. She is so hungry for this truth. And so the next day, as, it, as the whole process started again, and I saw her getting kind of exercised, I said to the brother, I said, listen, just, I said, I'd love to hear her questions. I'd love to. And I'll never forget, she stopped, and all the translations stopped, and everything got quiet for the first time in the hours of that morning session together. And she looked at me and she said, I don't know who 
I am. Have you ever had one of those moments where God's spirit is at work? And everything, I mean, it was all time froze. I looked at her and I thought, man, can I identify with that question? But as I saw her, I realized she wasn't looking for me to talk about my experiences. And I, and I, I pled with God very quickly, please, Lord, your words in this answer. And I looked at her and I said, you are a daughter of the king of kings. And boy, do I wish I'd had a video on her at that moment. She heard that truth. And she just, it was like, seriously? She kind of sat back a little bit. I said, you are a princess in the courts of heaven. The creator God of heaven and earth loves you more than you can ever imagine. And he values you. Friends, oh, if you could have only seen... She just sat back like, is this true? Because yes, this God of history, this God of the unseen realm, this God of love, this God who defines himself by love, he knows you. You know, she, it was so powerful the way she just, wow. Two days later, this was a woman who couldn't trust men. I didn't blame her. She'd been treated so horribly in, in what she had been before a believer. And one of her pimps had taken a gun and shot up her left arm, eight or seven or eight bullets. She couldn't even raise it hardly. And she said the last night, she said, she said, Brother John, can I just have a picture? I said, Of course. And she and she and she came. Another girl tried to get in and she, no, no, just us. And and and, and she came up and I'll never forget her taking that arm and putting it around my waist and then. Uh, yeah, she was on the, my right side, and I put my arm down on her shoulder. It's one of my favorite pictures ever. I immediately sent it to my wife. As you realize the transforming power of a truth, that this God who is there, who gave his son that we just celebrated as life for us, is the God who will never leave us behind. He's calling for us to do impossible things for his glory. He wants us to stand not in our strength, not who we are. Yes, friends, I guess I should be talking about missions today because everybody puts me in that category. But I just want you to know Jesus and do whatever he tells you to do. It doesn't matter to me if you stay in Colombia or go around the world or do whatever you're calling to do. We have three kids. Three of them are in Asia. One of them is here in the Columbia area. We love them all equally the same. We don't believe there's any second-class citizens in what our children are doing. We've told them all, and we will continue to tell them, just follow the Lord with all that you have. Know Him for who He is. Seek intimacy with Him. Wait on Him. Take, a, take an embarrassing amount of time with God. Don't worry about what the world says. Don't worry about what your friends think. Just Pursue him because he will fulfill his purposes for the glory of his name. I think I have about three minutes left. Can I give you one last story? This is from last month. So I'm over in the Middle East, and I won't say where. And it was a glorious class, just like the one in the other place was. And they were all believers, new you know, Druze background believers and, and uh, Muslim background believers and a couple of Christian background believers. And the reason I'm looking at my phone is I want to make sure I get this right in what he sent to me. And I'm with this brother who, the first night I'm there, he... Uh... Oh boy, I hope I can find it. 
The first night I'm there, he tells me a story. Here it is, good. And it was bad. He'd only been in Christ. He'd only be in Christ now 17 months. It was 16 months last month. And right after he came to Christ, they took everything away from him. I mean, they really took everything away. His family, his livelihood, all of it. But he said, but God's given me a vision. Back in his war-torn land, the cartels, they aren't cartels, they aren't called that there, but like the mafia, like the cartels, they control everything in the area. It's a lawless area. He said they are absolutely ruining the next generation. The young people, the kids, my my kids' age who were taken away from me, they're ruining them, forcing them into sexual slavery, forcing them into drugs, forcing them into these other things, using them and then throwing them away. And this brother said, it just hurts me. I'm going to start a youth center there. And I said, get it going. I want to come visit. And then a few days later, we got into the part I always teach on spiritual warfare. It seems like that's what people are always asking me to speak on. And I was speaking on forgiveness because forgiveness is one of the most profound areas of spiritual warfare. And we went through the morning and God really met us. You know, it's really hard to get around the implications of forgiveness when Paul writes things like in, what is it, uh, Colossians 3.13, bear with one another and forgive whatever grievances you have against one another. Forgive even as Christ has forgiven you. You really can't wiggle out of it. Just the forgive as Christ has forgiven you part is enough to make me be able to forgive anybody anywhere for anything. We got into that. A lot of tears, a lot of confessions, a lot of struggle with this whole thing of forgiveness. And after the break that morning, that brother came and he said, he said to the whole class and to me, he said, can I just speak, please, Brother John? And I said, absolutely. He said, I've heard what you've said this morning. It's clear what the scriptures teach. He said, but can I tell you about the one who did all this to me? And, he, and it was a certain man, a certain enemy who had taken his family away, who had ruined his livelihood. Who had, he, said, he, said, I, he said, it's mustachio. That's Arabic for impossible. He said, it just feels impossible to me. Please pray for me. You know, we, we ran to that man. <laughs> no, we didn't. Before we ran, actually, the translator says to me, because yeah, the whole class looked at me like, so what are you going to say to that? And I said, the man is a monster. No other way to look at it. Anyone that would dehumanize anyone in that way is nothing less than a monster. And then I said, but Christ died for people like that. And that translator, she just gasped. She looked at me and she said, are you serious? You want me to translate that Christ died for monsters like that? And I said, yes, please do. And she did. And then we gathered around. We prayed for our brother. He thanked me profusely. And then we started praying for his family and praying that he'd be able to forgive. And this is what he wrote me. I was in the woods of North Africa, North Africa, North Florida, uh, about two or three weeks ago. Sometimes it feels like, no, no I'm just kidding. And he, and he says this, how are you, my brother and my love? I love people who English is a second language. They hear us talking about loving each other so much, they always say this kind of stuff. How are you, my brother and my love, John? The Lord bless you and continue with you. I thank the Lord Jesus Christ that you were accompanying me at a moment in my life on earth and you were a great influence, listen to this, for my family 
and children to return to me. <laughs> this God of the unseen realm, this God who will honor us if we'll just follow him, this man, I don't know if he forgave that brother or not. I know there's complexities to it all. I know that the counseling center would say there's all kinds of complexities to forgiveness. I get it. But that, the, the, the kind of thing that happened in the unseen realm, we never thought we'd see within a week and a half after I'm leaving that place that in answer to our prayers, God would bring that, that brother's family back to him. And you know what happened the last day of that particular time? That translator who translated that day, the very next day, she said, I want to give my heart to Jesus. I see a love that is beyond what we could ever imagine, a love that comes from the God of history in the unseen realm. Friends, I don't know what you're going to do with your life. I really, I just finished the one time I'll ever speak at CIU. But can I just say, please go out and live for his glory. It's all that matters. <laughs> I used to whisper at my kids' ears before they were uh, an hour old, all four of them. I said, I said, all that matters is the glory of God. And of course, all of them raised their hands in worship. And, and No, not exactly, but I think they got the point. Father, please. Don't let it be about us. Forgive me if I drew attention to myself in any way, in any of this stuff. Oh, Lord, we worship you and we thank you that you are the God who is there, that you love us more than we could ever imagine, that we exist because of your glory, that you have made us glory bearers of yours, that you yearn for us to have intimacy with you at all times and in all things. And so that's my prayer for my brothers and sisters here. May they know you and then may they make you known. In the power of your son's name, we ask it. Amen. Thank you. We hope you found this message a blessing to your life. More Columbia International University Chapel messages are available at iTunes and at podcast.ciu.edu. Learn more about CIU's undergraduate, seminary, and graduate programs at our website, ciu.edu. Columbia International University educates people from a biblical worldview to impact the nations with the message of Christ. Thank you for the opportunity to minister to you today.